Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted today to have one of our own faculty, Jay Bucky, giving the uh, our discussion of this morning's topic, Even Astronauts Get the Blues. Jay was on STS-90 NeuroLab, one of the space shuttle flights, which may have been about the 90th one, and we're glad that he both went up there and both made it back safely here. Uh, he's going to be introduced to us this morning uh, by Bob McClellan, who is the Section Chief in Occupational Medicine. And Bob is an Associate Professor of Medicine. He's going to uh, introduce him, but also we have no conflicts of interest to disclose with today's lecture. Bob. Thank you, Rich. Uh, well, it's uh, truly a delight to be able to present to you one of uh, the faculty from the section of Occupational Environmental Medicine. Uh, Jay um, began his uh, medical career after re uh, receiving his MD at Cornell. He then went down to New York City to do his internship in internal medicine at uh, the New York Hospital Cornell Medical College, uh, as well as uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, he then um, set his sights southward and uh, went to Texas for a NASA Space Biology Fellowship at the University of Texas at Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, uh, where he began his academic career uh, while serving as a medical director of the ambulatory care clinic at Parkland Memorial Hospital. He also served as an assistant professor at the joint program in biomedical engineering at UT Southwestern and Arlington. He was also, at the time, an adjunct uh, professor in biomedical engineering at the UT in Austin, um, where he um, also served as a scientific consultant to NASA's Johnson Space Center of Life Sciences uh, Data Archive. Um, he came then to DHMC to complete his um, medical residency uh, at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and has then gone on to specialty certification in two of the subspecialties within uh, preventive medicine, uh, aerospace medicine and hyperbaric uh, medicine. Um, his career, as Rich mentioned, has taken him higher than any of us could possibly aspire to. Uh, yeah, but he fortunately, when he came back down, uh, his career, he landed at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where he's now a professor of medicine in, uh, in our section, as I mentioned, and also serves as an adjunct professor of engineering at Thayer. Um, he uh, has incredibly wide-ranging research interests uh, and has been well-funded throughout his career studying topics in undersea and uh, aerospace medicine, including uh, decompression uh, illness, autoacoustic emissions, motion sickness, and he's got devices to make you sick to your stomach if you're interested <laughs> in his lab, uh, oxygen as a radiation sensitizer, therapeutic uses of hyperbaric oxygen, and global health. Uh, but what he'll be talking about today is his research interest in multimedia-based psychosocial computer training and treatment. Um, his research has led to an innumerable uh, number of uh, journal articles and a couple of books. Uh, for his book on space physiology, he was awarded uh, the Luigi Napolitano Book Award uh, by the Inter International Academy of Astronautics. Um, his interest in bioengineering has also led to the creation and development of many space hardware uh, biomonitoring devices. And as you might expect with this illustrious career, he's received numerous awards, including the Lawrence uh, Young Bioastronautics Investigator Award and also the 2012 Joseph Kerwin Award for Achievements in Space Medicine. Looking for something to do in his spare time, uh, he competed in the 2007 New Hampshire Senatorial Democratic Campaign in New Hampshire, and he may be glad he didn't win. Um, we're glad you're still with us here. Uh, but most relevant to his talk today is his 10-year involvement in the development of computer-based uh, psychological training and treatment programs in collaboration with Mark Hagel, Raphael Rose and James Cartrain and others. In collaboration with the Interactive Media uh, Lab at Dartmouth, he's been a co-investigator on three projects funded by the National Space Biomedical Research Institute to develop a suite of computer-based psychological training and treatment programs from astronauts. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. 
for that wonderful uh, introduction. And, and also, I wanted to uh, send apologies for Mark Hagel, who uh, sends his regrets that he couldn't be here today. But he was uh, the principal investigator on uh, our valuation of the depression program that I'm going to show you uh, later. So the title of the talk is Even Astronauts uh, get, the, get the Blues. And uh, the reason for that is that how this all began is uh, we uh, started a series of projects to address psychological problems in astronauts. People who are on long duration missions are isolated. Uh, they're confined. They're with a limited group of people. And they don't have much uh, opportunity for other social interactions outside of that group. And so you're at high risk for things like stress, uh, for interpersonal conflict and uh, depression. And it's a group of people who typically want to be autonomous, want to be self-directed. So we thought that computer-based uh, ways to, to address psychological uh, problems would be a good approach for them, because it's something you can do on your own. You can be autonomous and address those problems in that way. So what I want to do uh, here this morning is I want to take you through um, the programs. I'll uh, give you a little introduction about to the content. Then we'll go through the different programs, conflict, stress, and depression, and then show you uh, the results from an evaluation we did uh, on the depression program here at DHMC. And uh, because even though we started with astronauts, we think this might be something that also might be useful for, for busy professionals as well. So I'd like to start with a case, and uh, which may be relevant. Uh, this is a case of Dr. Emerald. He's a 42-year-old employee at a major rural medical center. He's been working there about 10 years and is due to go out for promotion. He's working long hours, starting early morning, leaving early evening, and often working on the new electronic medical record system at home to complete charts. He's not sleeping well, feels constantly anxious about meeting RVU and promotion targets, and is filled with doubts about whether he made the right choices in life. Other people seem to be breezing through these problems. He's drinking a fair amount of wine to help him get to sleep at night. He and his wife have been arguing about their lack of home life and time together. Team members have been complaining about him. He doesn't seem very compassionate anymore, and he's frequently irritable. He wonders, what have I gotten myself into? And sees a bleak future where things only get worse. His wife suggests he should seek counseling, but he's worried about the confidentiality <laughs> of the process. Plus, he doesn't know how he would find the time to attend counseling sessions anyway. So that's a case that I think we can relate to. And um, it highlights the fact that things like stress and burnout and depression are something that can certainly happen in a medical setting. And this is some data that uh, Bob McClellan collected. This is a, was an informal survey using the Mayo Clinic Physician Wellbeing Index. And it was about 40 people here at DHMC who came to a talk about you know, stress, burnout, and how to address that here at DHMC. And you'll see uh, and the blue lines are people who said yes, and the yellow lines, people who said no. But what, what's very interesting here is that, uh, and this is not a scientific survey, but notice that burned out at work, 73% of people were saying yes. Emotion problems, 63%. Feeling depressed or hopeless, 23%. Uh, certainly very high percentages. Of course, this isn't a scientific sample, but that's a, that's a significant uh, issue. And we know it's not just, uh, this is a, a, not a scientific sample, but if you do look out into the literature at large, stress, burnout, depression are major problems in medical settings. For example, where depression and suicide, the prevalence of depression in physicians is about comparable to the general population, about 13% in men, 20% in women. But compared to similar populations, male physicians commit suicide 1.4 times more often, and female physicians commit suicide 2.3 times more often. So um, a significant health problem. And the cost is significant, too. Just looking at the costs here for the uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock health program, the cost for all claims in the prior year were $65 million. Uh, but those costs where, the, where anxiety or depression were a component was $17 million, a significant percentage of the whole. So and that's not just providers, that's for everybody. But still, things like stress, burnout, depression, major problems uh, for the uh, medical field. So what are some uh, approaches to this? Well, one approach is uh, cognitive therapy. And cognitive therapy, I have a little quote here. This is actually, well, I borrowed this from Mark Hagel. For there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And uh, what, the, what, uh, <laughs> what Shakespeare is saying there is that 
uh, events can be good or bad, but it's our perception of those events that affects us. Uh, how we think about what we're experiencing can have an effect on us emotionally. And so there's a theory that emotions can be the outcome of individuals' perceptions, thoughts, images, and beliefs. So how somebody approaches their world and how they think about it. Um, Alan Beck from the Beck Depression Inventory, Don Meikenbaum and others, it classified depression perhaps as a disorder of thinking with someone who's thinking a lot of negative thoughts and seeing the world in a negative way. So the idea that the, your mood can be influenced by how you conceive the world, yourselves in it, and your prospects for the future. Um, and some aspects of that is some people view themselves as, uh, as defective and inadequate. Person attributes cause to stable internal traits. Uh, because of these defects, person is undesirable and worthless. You see hints of this perhaps in the case of Dr. Emerald, where he seems to be thinking that other people are breezing through these problems. The world presents insuperable obstacles to reaching valued life goals. Misinterpretations of interactions is representing defeat, and thus consistent with preformed negative conclusions. And uh, again, if you see a look at Dr. Emerald's case, he sees the future uh, as not ever getting any better. Uh, current difficulties are destined to continue into the future. Expectation of continued failure and unremitting hardship. And this is manifested as automatic thoughts and cognitive distortions. Um, an automatic thought might be, Oh, it's that EDH again. <laughs> or a cognitive distortion of it, and things will never, ever get better. So behavioral therapy is another way of looking at, uh, uh, at these problems. And this is focused more on just changing your behavior, that if you can just change maladaptive behaviors, let's say like the uh, excessive drinking or not exercising, that can improve mood. And so the goal in behavior therapy is usually focused on just increasing engagement in, in socially uh, act reinforcing activities. So in Dr. Emerald, if we look at uh, his case, we see elements of both. So we have some cognitions. Uh, others are not having the problems and are handling it better. You know, that might be true, but it's probably the case that everybody else is having problems like his as well. Won't ever get better. Well, you know, uh, things come and go. You know, it's, it's not the case that never get better. Made a major mistake in life. Obviously, Dr. Emerald probably wouldn't be where he was if he didn't have some skills in order to get into that uh, you know, position. Uh, behaviors, not doing things with wife and family, drinking too much, working all the time. So you can see both cognitions and behaviors that uh, we can see in that case study that I presented early on. So one approach to this is what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. The idea that if you can work on people's cognitions and their behaviors, that that can then influence emotions. And, uh, and that's the underlying concept of the material that we have in the virtual space station. All of the stuff in the virtual space station is cognitive behavioral therapy based. So the reason why is because cognitive behavioral therapy is well suited for computer administration. You're not giving a medication. It's something where you're interacting with the person, trying to help them to think about their world differently and encouraging them to change the behaviors. However, when you're doing something like this with a computer, some questions might come up. Would people find this to be credible? Would they think that working with a computer is really a credible form of therapy? Would they find it acceptable? Would they think that using a computer is the same thing as actually going to see a therapist? And then the other thing is, would they find that they're developing a therapeutic alliance? And therapeutic alliance is important because studies have shown that the alliance you have with the therapist is an important part of the outcome of therapy. And so when you're working with a computer, what kind of alliance do you have there it would seem to be artificial. So that's, uh, those are some of the questions that you come up when you're trying to develop a system that's going to be a computer-based therapy. So our approach to this is uh, in the uh, virtual space station. And how it got started, it was influenced by the Interactive Media Lab, which used to be here at Dartmouth, uh, and project developed by Joe uh, Henderson. And, and Joe's idea was that you wanted to provide experiential learning whenever possible, and, um, and that the, uh, our psychological training and interventions are uh, cognitive behavioral therapy based. So in, within the program, you want to have a mentor or a person who's guiding the person through that the user sees as credible and is an expert. And the, the computer gives you the ability to do that, to put someone in front of the people who they can see as being someone who knows what they're doing and is a true expert in the field. And you can put them in an environment that seems familiar, give them experts uh, who they recognize as being experts. Uh, the work uh, was uh, done with Mark Hagel here from Dartmouth. He was our 
key person for our electronic problem-solving therapy treatment, which I'll show you later, James Cartren from Harvard, who actually started here at Dartmouth, and Rafe Rose from UCLA, uh, who was the PI on the stress project, and uh, Jim was the PI on our, our conflict and depression projects. And what you're going to see is something called EPST. That stands for electric, Electronic Problem Solving Treatment. And I'll, I'll go into that in uh, a little bit. So uh, what I'd like to do is take you on a little tour through the program. Can I turn the lights off? OK. where you can access training and resources to help deal with the stresses of long-duration space flights. In the training simulator, you'll interact with virtual crew members to learn and practice managing some of the problems that might come up on long-duration missions. All right, so we're going to skip the rest of the introduction, but it gives you an idea that what we've done is we've created a space station uh, environment. But you can have a, a clinic environment or a home or a, a military base, however you want to set it up so that it, uh, it would fits with um, the audience that you're trying to reach. So what I want to do first is take you into the conflict section. And there we're going to meet the mentor, Len Greenhall. She's a psychologist from the uh, Tuck School of Business. And he's going to take us through conflict, how to think about conflict in a cognitive behavioral therapy way. And uh, he's going to give us a little introduction to it. Uh, I may skip through it a little bit, um, but he's going to show us a um, sample conflict between two astronauts. And uh, they'll be going to be talking about EVA, what EVA is a spacewalk. This is the training simulator. This is the conflict management part of the simulator. We record. Hi, I'm Len Greenhouse. I'm a professor of management at the Amos Tuck School of Business Administration at Dartmouth College. I'm trained as a psychologist. And for the last 30 years, I've been teaching people how to deal effectively with conflicts. First, we need to understand that conflicts are everyday occurrences in normal relationships. So uh, one thing about choosing Len, uh, since we're trying to reach astronauts, uh, rather than have a, uh, someone in a clinical setting, we want to have someone in a business setting, someone who's uh, promoting the idea of conflict resolution as performance enhancing, rather than as uh, trying to address abnormal psychology. And so I'm going to skip ahead, and Len's going to show us a sample conflict and then tell us how to think about it. Let's switch it on. I'm past that. Activate Cal sequence. Activate Cal sequence. I'm past that. Just run to the checklist, John. I've done this a thousand times. I know what I'm doing. What you're doing is messing up the experiment. You skip a step. It's right. You didn't lighten it up. So you work on your suit this way? What is it with you, Steve? Why don't you take a break? Let me finish up. Okay, when we're outside, forget to clip your tether, should I let you know? Or not? <laughs> Isn't this your first flight? Look, you're skipping items on the checklist. John, I don't want you to do that on our yet. I got a real problem with that. If we did things your way, we'd never get out of the airline. Don't tell me how to do my job. If you don't like it, stay inside. Maybe you should stay inside, John. You could get us both killed. No, I think you should stay in here and work on your science fair projects. The CDA is off, and you get to tell the ground. Let's switch data on. Well, as I warned you, that conflict got out of hand pretty fast. And <laughs> why? Now, in understanding why, what we know about com conflict is best understood as a cycle. Now, all natural cycles have the potential to accelerate. It starts out with an expression of some sort. Usually these are words, but it could be a gesture, an action, something one of the, the people did. John, for example, said, I've done this a thousand times. Steve is attaching meaning to, I've done this a thousand times. And the meaning comes out more like, I don't need you. So Steve reacts emotionally to what he experiences. And then he says something back to John. John, in turn, hears what Steve says, 
That's the expression that Steve makes. John hints that, attaches meaning to it, and John reacts emotionally. And then John says something back. So what you've got is a dynamic that plays back and forth between the two people, that if you can understand what's going on, not objectively, but what's going on inside their heads, then you have some points of intervention. One point. So he's giving us a cognitive behavioral way to think about conflict. So with the, uh, the meanings being the automatic thoughts or the cognitions, the emotions, and then the expressions being the actions. So that's uh, what the approach we take to a conflict. And as I'll show you in a little bit, you get a chance to practice some of those skills. But let's move on to stress. And uh, here in stress, we have a different mentor. This is Rafe Rose from UCLA. He's a psychologist there. And he's going to give us an example of someone who's stressed. For this part of the program, this stress component, we evaluated it with medical and business students. So rather than to have uh, astronauts in a conflict, we needed to have cases that were more relevant to students. So what you're going to see is a case that has to do with a student who's in a stressful situation. And then we'll th get a way of thinking about what that student is experiencing. Hi, I'm Ray Fidel Rose. I'm a psychologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. My interest is training people how to manage stress more effectively. I'll be your guide for this program called SmartOp. SmartOp stands for Stress Management and Resilience Training for Optimal Performance. This program will help you build resilience and manage stressful situations more effectively. Stress is part of living. We can't avoid it, but we can learn to manage it well and be resilient. Okay, so I'm going to take you on to the case. This program uses an interactive game. Let's take a look at an example. Lisa is in the midst of a busy time in grad school with several important exams, presentations, and papers coming up. She feels overwhelmed, frustrated, and fatigued. She's worried about how she'll manage things. Her neck is tense, she stopped going to the gym, is not sleeping well, and is drinking more alcohol than usual. She's avoiding seeing her friends because she thinks she won't be any fun to be around. Well, if she studies a lot, the concentration is very poor. Lisa thinks she's handling the situation poorly and that she won't do well in school. Let's look at this scenario and break down her stress response. As this stress pyramid shows, stress has different components. First, there are triggers. A trigger could be an event or something another person says or does. Could be something that's happening at the moment or something you're worried might happen. Any of these things could trigger a stress reaction. Triggers are stresses that make us react, and our reactions can be thoughts, feelings, or things we do. Actions. In this scenario, Lisa's triggers are her workload. Thoughts are how we appraise the triggers. One thought Lisa might have is, I can't cope with this. Thoughts can also be what we think might happen. For example, she might think, I'm going to fail my class. Thoughts can exaggerate the impact of the trigger and worsen stress, or they can be rational and help reduce it. If Lisa's thinking, I can't handle the stress, and I will not perform well in my schoolwork, that probably contributes to her worry and tension. But is Lisa really thinking accurately about this? I think as bad as she thinks. One of the skills we will teach you is how to evaluate your thinking to make sure you're assessing your stress situation. Triggers can also stir up feelings, including physical feelings, like a racing heart, tension, or even being sweaty. Feelings can also be emotions, like worry, frustration, anger, or sadness. Lisa feels tense and is frustrated and worried. Strong feelings like these can keep you from thinking clearly and acting rationally. Also, constant frustration and worry can damage a person's health. And this program will teach you skills to manage strong feelings so you can act productively. Finally, triggers influence our actions, the things we do. In our scenario, Lisa is eating poorly, she's not exercising, and is avoiding her friends. And SmartOp will give you some strategies to use at times of significant stress. You probably noticed the individual parts of the stress in this pyramid can interact and influence each other. For example, a badly chosen action like drinking too much can end up creating a new trigger, like an argument with a loved one or a legal problem. 
But if you can intervene effectively at the different points of the stress pyramid, you can manage stress effectively. Stress is easy to recognize, but hard to So again, In another uh, cognitive behavioral way of thinking about stress. So we're talking instead about the you know, thoughts, feelings, actions, just like the cognitions, emotions, and behaviors that we talked about before. So we said that we uh, give you some experiential learning. So at least in here, uh, I'm going to take you through a little exercise in effective communication as how you can uh, perhaps act in a more uh, effective way during uh, for communication. So we're going to go uh, try uh, the effective communication portion. And it will give us an opportunity to uh, practice our skills. A challenging source of ongoing stress can be interpersonal relationships. Like when you have tension with colleagues at work, a supervisor, or family, friends, or loved ones. This skill can help end an argument or lower tension. Even when a conflict can't be resolved, you can still do your part to communicate effectively and hopefully make it less stressful. The key is to communicate your wants and desires consistently and clearly in a non-hostile way. When you do that, you're more likely to get a receptive response from the other person, and in turn, what you want. While effective communication may lead to less stress over the long term, there's no guarantee you'll always get the results you want. So uh, what I'm going to do, take a jump ahead, and we're going to see a case of Kelly and Wayne. Kelly is a little uh, concerned because uh, Wayne doesn't ever seem to uh, want to uh, do anything together or arrange anything. He spends most of his time working. And so uh, we're going to go into this scenario and we'll have the opportunity to, to say, uh, choose some uh, things that Kelly can say. You can only do what is in your control. Hey, what are you up to? Uh, not much work. Hmm. Well, I'm heading to the farmer's market. You want to come? Um, I have work to do. Now you get to pick what Kelly says next. <laughs> okay, um, so we're we're gonna go maybe down a bad path. <laughs> you know, this is all I get from you. So I've heard. You know, this is all I get from you. You don't ever plan anything for us to do together. It's really annoying. The <laughs> <laughs> other ineffective thing that Kelly says to Wayne is that she tells him what he should be doing and not really what she wants or how she feels in a non-aggressive manner. Let's see how Wayne responds. Wayne <laughs> 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 appeared annoyed. So let's go back. And we can try a different pathway. Thanks, Sonny. 
So anyway, the way to practice, and um, just give you one other uh, chance to uh, practice this. I'm going to take you to another uh, scenario. In this case, uh, it's uh, going to be with your crewmate, Chuck. So you're on a mission. Your crewmate, Chuck, has a little bit of a problem. And uh, you, need, you have some options on how to work through it. Here's how these simulations work. You're a flight engineer one, or FE one, and your crewmate, Chuck, is flight engineer two. We'll be giving you three choices of what to say or do. You can roll your mouse over them to hear how they're said. Even though some options are more likely than others to reduce the conflict, I recommend that you try out options you might not choose in real life. That's because all paths in these simulations lead to teaching points. You can click the backup button anytime if you want to change your choice and go down another pathway. You can click on the fair fighting manual at any time. <laughs> it also comes manual in the resource modules library. Now, as you go through the simulation, I'll be right here coaching you along the way. Okay, back to the simulation. It's four months into your mission with five and a half left to go. So far, the mission's been going pretty well. But you're both tired, having had to sleep since last night. Okay, did you just like it squirrely? Shoot, mine too. Damn it, the whole system's done. There's a long cable. And when I was stalling the recorder, I just connected the A10 cable. I mean, I fixed it right away, but I had screwed up the whole system. Hey, look. Ground calls up, don't tell them about the cables. <laughs> oh, this is a tricky situation. <laughs> you believe it's important to tell the ground what happened. At the same time, you don't want Chuck to get in trouble. What's your response? And you get uh, different so choices. I was trying to figure this out. We've got to tell what's wrong with telling ground. Okay, but you're putting me in a bad position. And uh, so, you know, so you have a, either a confrontation, a capitulation, or a What's negotiation. We'll go ahead and negotiate here. What's wrong with telling the ground? Well, you know. You remember what happened around? Put the one wrong switch as influences. Now you know what Chuck's worried about. How would you like to respond? And uh, we could, there are many different pathways you can take through here, but I think what we might do, just to move along, is we'll see if we can blame this on the ground. Maybe it was the procedures. Maybe it was the procedures. Yeah. That's good luck. No, their instructions were kind of hard to follow up. <laughs> <laughs> Houston, this is FE2. Go ahead, Houston. Houston, I think we found it. The instructions you set up for the recorder had some serious problems. If you follow the connect procedure, you can end up just connecting A10. It may need some better validation. Copy that, FE2. The procedure team ran through this in the mock-up, but they can give it another look. In any organization, it's tempting to blame headquarters when things go wrong. So let's uh, move on. And uh, so now I want to show you the uh, the depression uh, portion of the program. And this is what ES EPST or electronic problem solving therapy. And here Mark Hagel from Dartmouth is the uh, mentor, and um, he's going to go ahead and uh, take us through. from the depression briefing in the training module. I'm a psychologist at Dartmouth Medical School. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person. Hopefully this is the next best thing. Let me give you an overview of what we can do here. I'm going to guide you through a treatment that's helped a lot of people with depression. It's called problem solving treatment. I've used problem solving treatment to treat doctors, pilots, and scientists for depression 
and I'd like to help you too. Now, we're really definitely limited in what we can do. So I'm going to jump ahead, and uh, Mark is going to tell us uh, how tell us about problem-solving treatment and how it works. Uh, also, um, he's going to give us the PHQ-9 to take. And I think I already filled it out, so we may just see my score on the PHQ-9. But it provides the PHQ-9 for you to fill out on your own. And then there are different responses that you get from Mark, depending on what your score is and whether or not you uh, uh, say that you're, you're suicidal. With me the computer. I see you've already taken the depression assessment in the self-assessment module. That's a good start. This is your score on that measure last time you took it. It looks like you're in the mild range of depression. This tells me that you're in the right place. At this level of depression, problem-solving treatment is an excellent choice. And just parenthetically, if it was too high, Mark would tell you, you're not in the right place. So, um, and that's a, a good feature to have within the program because it helps to guide, give people a sense that maybe they should be seeking other, other help. <clears throat> now, I'm going to skip ahead just a little as to talk about problem-solving treatment. There's a direct link between problems and depression. Problems in a person's life can make depression worse and even cause it. See, depression saps your energy and lowers your motivation. That makes it hard to work on problems. It's a vicious cycle, really a downward spiral. Problems build up, they cause more depression, and that results in less motivation and energy to fix them. When you take action to solve problems, even in small ways, depression will decrease. As depression goes down, energy levels go up, and problems get solved. This creates an upward spiral. Please remember this. The most important part of problem-solving treatment is what you do between sessions. I'm glad you're here. In the first step, we'll work on selecting a problem, clarifying it, and breaking it down into something you can get some control over. In step two, you'll set a goal that's realistic and that you can accomplish in a fairly short period of time. In step three, I'll ask you to think of as many solutions as possible without being critical of any of them. In the fourth step, I'll ask you to go over those solutions and think of the pros and cons of each one. Then you'll compare the solutions to each other and choose one or more that are feasible and don't cause new problems. After you choose a solution, the fifth step involves creating an action plan. I'll ask you to type in exactly what you'll do to put the solution into effect. The more detailed and specific, the better. In step six, you'll schedule enjoyable activities because doing fun things is important too. All right, so what I'd like you to do, uh, what I'd like, you, like to do is to take you to a second visit. So let's imagine we've already gone through problem-solving treatment, and now we're going to come back to visit Mark to have him evaluate how we're doing. So we're going to quit out and then sign in um, as someone who's already um, done the first session. Welcome back, and let's get started. 
I see your depression has dropped since last time, and it's in the mild range. That's great news. I'd like to see you continue with problem-solving treatment until your mood stays in this mild range for at least six weeks. That way, you'll be able to really learn the technique, and you can use it even if your depression comes back in the future. So in this case, I'd already taken the PHQ-9. Now I'd like to see how your problem-solving is coming along since your last session with this program. <coughs> Here's the problem you've been working on, your goal, and the solution or solutions you chose to reach that goal. The idea is, if you reach your goal, your problem should be further along toward being solved. Well, how did it go toward solving the problem? Click on your answer. So this could be the problem that uh, Dr. Emerald had worked on, for example. So lost contact with many old friends and family members. We know that since Dr. Emerald's working all the time, He's not really having much in the way of social contact. And he might have put this problem statement into a more concrete form, say, I leave work every day, go directly home without talking or spending time with other people. His goal is to do more activities with other people. And in this case, the solution that he chose was to join a workbook, work, rather a book group. And he put together an action plan to do this. So now what Mark is going to do is take us through a little process to see how our process went. So I'm going to say that things went pretty okay. well. I'm glad you're making some progress. Even though you didn't solve the problem completely, it's good to see the problem getting better. How satisfied were you with the amount of effort you put into trying to solve the problem? Not the results you got, just how satisfied you are with the work you put into your solution. Because remember, this is about behavioral activation. I see that you are moderately satisfied with the amount of effort you put into trying to solve your problem and your depression got better. Do you see the connection here? Working on solving problems in your life can have a real impact. Keep on doing your problem solving. And be sure to remember to do an enjoyable activity every day, even if it's just something small. Here's the way you describe the problem. Does it have to do with a practical problem in your life? So now we're going through some troubleshooting to see how did it go and are there any things that we need to change. And when he asks these questions, you'll see uh, sort of the underlying idea behind problem-solving treatment. The idea has to be that it's problems that you have some direct control over, that they're achievable, that they can be done within a short period of time. Um, it's not a problem that you can't solve, like, you know, let's say, my supervisor is a jerk. Well, that's not really something you can affect. But you can affect your reaction to that or what kind of actions you take. So you'll see these questions have to do uh, with those sort of things in each of the problem statement and the solutions and so forth. So we're going to go through these questions, and I'm going to answer that to suggest that maybe we had a problem in brainstorming solutions. Is it about changing your mood or changing how you're thinking about things? Is this problem under your personal control? Are you motivated to work on this problem now? Now here's the goal you wrote. Is the goal something you could measure by counting? Is it something you or somebody else could actually watch happening? Is it general? Is there more than one way to reach it? Is the goal something you can accomplish within a week or two? Here's the list of possible solutions you brainstormed last time. When you were brainstorming, did you use a free-thinking style? Or did you rule out some ideas before you typed them in? Did you deliberately come up with some wild ideas? Did you think of new solutions that didn't occur to you last time? Finally. Sometimes we hold ourselves back from problem solving. That can happen when you have depression. Did you have too little energy to work on your problem, even if your action plan seemed good? Did you feel hopeless about it, like it just could never work out or help? Did you just plain forget to work on your problem? Are you really committed to working on this problem at this time? Okay, thanks for answering all those questions. Let me give you some feedback and suggestions for how to revise your problem solving on this problem. Sounds like your problem solving ran into some trouble in the brainstorming step. This is pretty common. It can take a couple tries before people really let themselves come up with lots of different ideas. I'd suggest starting out by doing some more brainstorming. If you prefer to work on other parts of your problem solving, you can do that too. So that just gives you a sense about how the program is uh, put together. And now what I'd like to do is uh, just to show you, give, give credit to all the people who worked on this, and then show you the results of a trial of the electronic problem-solving treatment program. 
Uh, so there have been a lot of people who've worked on the pro uh, over time, uh, particularly on the different uh, components, the overall virtual space station idea, the conflict management, problem-solving treatment for depression, and uh, stress and uh, resilience. So our, uh, for our EPST evaluation, so that's for the depression program, we did a phase two single arm trial to evaluate the feasibility, acceptability, credibility, therapeutic alliance, and initial efficacy of the EPST program. And that's the program I just show you with Mark Hagel as the mentor. We had 29 participants who enrolled. And what was interesting is that two of those participants came to the initial PHQ-9, were told by Mark that this was not the right place for them to be and they ended up seeking other help. So we saw that as being a positive outcome from the program. So those, those two people got screened out. Then out of the 27, 23 completed at least four of six EPST sessions over nine weeks. And uh, actually, most people completed all six. Our average age was 53, uh, mostly white, 79% women. 80% had a major depressive disorder. 17% had dysthymia and a fair number were on antidepressant medications at the time they started on the program. Uh, we did several measures uh, during the course of the study. We used these top two were our depression measures. One is a, a clinician rated, the other is a self-rated measure. And we measured them at week zero, four, and 10. So the Montgomery Ashbrook Depression Rating Scale and the Hopkins Simpkin Checklist. Well, there also, we did a check for depression diagnosis at weeks zero and 10. The Agnew relationship measure was our measure of therapeutic alliance. Uh, well, we talked about whether you feel like you're in a true a relationship with the therapist. Credibility, we had a treatment credibility scale that was adapted from the Borkovet treatment uh, credibility scale. The accepted of acceptability of self-guided treatment uh, was a measure that we had designed to look at whether people felt it was acceptable to get treatment uh, from a computer. Um, this is, gives you a word cloud of all the problems that people uh, selected as being problems in their life. It didn't mean that they worked in all these problems, but these are problems that they selected as being potential uh, problems they could work on. And if you look at the word cloud, you can certainly relate to the kind of uh, problems that uh, people have. It's all part of all of our lives. And, and then this is a word cloud of all the problems that uh, people selected. So the most common words that appeared in the problems that they selected to work on within the program. So how did things turn out? Well, if we look at usability and uh, credibility, um, the acceptability of self-guided treatment from 1 to 7 got a 5.27. So on average, we're on the high scale of people thinking, yes, this was acceptable way to treat depression. And also scared, uh, scored fairly well in uh, credibility with this 0 to 100%, we're at 72%. The system usability scale is mainly a, it's like a software evaluation, uh, like you would use for a cell phone interface or a new uh, you know, computer operating system. Uh, we scored a 79, which is pretty good. Anything over 75 is uh, very good for software. So that's just a sense of how people, how easy people found it to use the software. So therapeutic alliance has different components. They have bond, which is looking at questions like the therapist is warm and friendly, the therapist is supportive. In this case, the therapist is uh, Mark or the computer. Partnership, um, well, whether you and the therapist uh, are willing to work together. Confidence, whether you have confidence in the therapist. Um, you can also notice these questions have you know, a negative side, too. I just circled the positive one. Openness, whether the client, C stands for client, can express feelings or can re reveal uh, feelings. And then client initiative is whether client takes the lead. So these are the different aspects of the therapeutic alliance measure. And uh, what I'm going to show you here, I'll just guide you through this. So we look at each one of those, the bond, partnership, confidence, openness, and client initiative. On the y-axis here, the higher the score, the better. And then down here, the first and third bars are the program. This is EPST at four weeks. That's EPST at 10 weeks. 
And then these two, bars two and four, are compute, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in a live setting. So that's for, uh, from another study where they looked at a th therapeutic alliance in co cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist. This last one is from a study using a different computer-based uh, depression program called Beating the Blues. And if we look at the results here, if we compare uh, these, the asterisks mean it's significantly different from live therapy. You can see that um, at least for bond, confidence, and openness, um, the EPST seemed to be doing better than other computer-based therapy. and was actually comparable to scores that have been achieved in, in live therapy. What's interesting, I thought, was that the client initiative was much higher with EPST, which makes sense because it is self-directed, and uh, which is then also reflected in lower partnership because you obviously it's hard for you to partner with the program. So at least these results seem to make some sense. But we're very encouraged by these therapeutic alliance uh, values. This is uh, the depression outcomes. So we can see at week zero, week four, and week 10, this is the MADRAS score with uh, higher being worse. The red triangles are for EPST. And then these other two lines are from another trial that Tom Oxman and Mark Hagel had done in the past using PST in a live setting, so PST from a therapist. So at least compared to this previous trial of live PST, we seem to be doing about the same with the computerized uh, EPST. Um, what I'd like to take you through is some of the other results from the uh, study. What this is, these are numbers from the SF36. So this is looking at physical health, mental health, vitality. This is called the mental composite score, and this is the physical composite score. And higher numbers are better. So in this case, the mental uh, composite score increased significantly over time, well, although we didn't see any change in the physical composite score which makes some sense. And I, I'm sorry, this is uh, week zero, week four, week 10, and then these are the significances at zero, four, and 10. And then if we look at the other outcomes, just taking it from the top to bottom, uh, this is the percent of people who have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or dysthymia, went from 85% at week zero to 18% at week 10. 73% uh, of people had a clinically significant effect. 95% had reliable change. 21 people completed all six uh, EPST sessions, so that's 21 out of 23. That's pretty good. And the effect sizes for our uh, outcomes were, were fairly reasonable. So although this was an uncontrolled trial, single arm, uh, we're still very encouraged with the overall outcomes. So uh, just to uh, summarize, uh, EPST offers a confidential, autonomous, and interactive way to treat uh, depression. <clears throat> and it may be suitable for busy professionals, so it can be, it, since it can be scheduled at a person's convenience. To do the trial, we actually had people come to the library. But uh, you know, in future trials, we hope to move it out and try it in uh, more distributed settings. The program scores well in measures of therapeutic alliance. And this is uh, important because therapeutic alliance is an important part of the therapeutic effect. And you might expect that a computer wouldn't do well in that area. And we like to think it's because of the extensive use of multimedia and, uh, and video. Um, as I showed you, the cognitive behavioral approach is also suitable for addressing interpersonal conflict and stress. Uh, I didn't show the results, but we also evaluated the stress program um, in a randomized control trial with business and law students. And uh, it did well for uh, lowering stress. And our work is underway to offer the depression program as a research option here so that uh, people could use this program um, for depression treatment uh, here at uh, DHMC. And then just uh, one last thing I want to say is that I know that you, I showed you the program with swooshing into different modules and uh, that sort of thing. You don't actually have to uh, have the swooshing modules. The, uh, the um, program that we evaluated in the trial here did not have swooshing modules. You just went into the program. And you can run the programs independently. So you can have just the stress program or just the depression program. You don't necessarily have to have uh, each one together. And just to show you what that uh, looks like,
So, uh, and this would be the entry screen for just doing a problem-solving treatment as a standalone treatment. So no swooshing, you just uh, sign in and go ahead and get started on the, on the program. So uh, I think that's all I've got, and I'd be happy to take, uh, take questions. Great. See, one of the quick questions is, how do we get the handbook of Fair Play? <laughs> <laughs> Be happy to send that along, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually from the University of Pennsylvania, put that together, yeah. Mm -hmm. The Fair Fighting Manual. Jay, the program you showed there sort of only sort of male people. Did you say you could change the mentors? Well. Yes, of course you'd have to re refilm it, right? But um, you don't have that set now. We don't have that. We don't have a female mentor in there right now. We were concerned, though. I will say, so we were concerned that the program, even in its current state, had mentions as a space program. Occasionally, Mark will tell you to visit your flight surgeon, you know. And uh, and when we ran the trial, most of the participants were women, and we were wondering, well, how is this going to work out? Um, but it turns out it worked out fine. Uh, people like the space references, it turns out, and, uh, and they rated it high for Therapeutic Alliance. So it's possible we could do better if we had another mentor, but in general, people seem to like Mark and enjoyed working through the program with him. So uh, as rheumatologists, we see a lot of fibromyalgia patients, mm -hmm. and we uh, want to refer them for cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's really hard to find a therapist Yep. Uh, neck of the woods and probably more globally too. Um, and I was wondering if this was adaptable to people outside of the professional realm where it seems to have been um, so successful. Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, I think, and we'd be happy to try to set up a protocol to, you know, for people who looks like they would benefit from this to, to set up a way that they could use the EPST program to address uh, the problems they may be having. Because uh, Mark, in other studies, has uh, used EPST for you know people with uh, macular degeneration, use it with cancer patients. So it, it's a general way of approaching depression that works in a lot of different settings. So you had this example about this person who didn't have enough human interaction going straight home from work. And you wonder if maybe the problems are created by spending too much time with computers at the workplace. <laughs> 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 well, that's a good thought. Um, well, one would hope that as a consequence of working on that problem, the person ends up with more human interaction. <laughs> that's an excellent point. Yeah. So, in the, in the uh, fantasy going forward, uh, is this available on the App Store and iTunes? Oh, is it, no, it's not available on the App Store, and um, it, it, it can be put onto a tablet. We just haven't done that as yet. I mean, can, can you imagine in the future? Yes, absolutely. Be, you know, I'm feeling down, and well, there's a resource. Let me go right there. Yeah. Or do you need a professional interface at some point? Um, it, it depends, I think, on the, the population. You know, so uh, uh, Renee Pepin, who is here, is using it with older adults. And uh, one of the things we're looking at is whether older adults can just use it without any intervention or whether they need somebody to be there to help, you know, to solve problems as they're going through it. But so far, we found most people, once they get in, you know, they just, it seems intuitive to them and they make it through okay. So there's regulatory hurdles that you have to go through in order to make this available. In other words, if we were a device, you need to go to the FDA, et cetera, or so I haven't looked into this recently, but it's this big area of the discussion on computer-based therapies. Um, you know, sometimes they're considered to be interactive workbooks, and they don't require any regulation. Sometimes they're considered to be therapeutic um, agents, and you do need to get FDA. Here at Dartmouth, we're only going to be using this in a research-type setting, so we would always go through and get CPHS approval. Um, but for other programs, like in, for example, in the UK, they use that program, Beating the Blues, that I mentioned, fairly routinely um, uh, there. 
and so they've already set up a regulatory framework for that. But as far as the details of that, I don't really know. Oh, okay. There's the diagnostic component of it weighs heavily. Right. If it, there's not a diagnostic component in in the programs, they're less interested in, in seeing it. But if you're diagnosing a patient, you're using it to diagnose or treat a patient, it has to go through the device. Yeah, and so where we would probably get the most attention is in the PHQ-9. You know, are we considered to be diagnosing because we're having people take the PHQ-9 and then reflecting the results back to them? question in terms of medication compliance I would imagine that it would be self-report but does this measure if folks who are on medication are they maintaining and complying throughout the program so the program itself does not ask people about their medications uh, for the trial the agreement we had is that people would stay stable on their medications rather than they wouldn't change it so that was what we had for the trial um, you know when it's used in actual use then uh, we won't necessarily have any control over that Jay, you've shown us a great marriage of the technology. I, you know, Joe Henderson's been working on a lot of these ideas for a long time, and it's wonderful to see how the maturity of this gets into different uh, applications. This is a very powerful tool that should likely have a lot of utility. So think about how it can fit into what you're doing with populations of people we're working with and ourselves. But thank you for. Well, thank you. Thank you.